Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week we're airing the first half of a live event at the Westminster Theological Seminary Preaching Conference in Glenside, Pennsylvania. The Mortification of Spin regulars are joined by Drs. Joel Beakey and Kent Hughes. Let's join the audience for Mortification of Spin Live. Let's give a warm welcome to the Mortification of Spin team and guests. Well, I thought we'd open up talking about something that um, a lot of students in seminary ask about, and that is the call, the discernment of the call to office. So I thought maybe share with us your own experience in that and then go down with the rest of the pastors here. Yeah, the call to the ministry is a very special thing. I do believe that every, every ambassador of Christ needs an internal call as well as an external call to uh, preach the gospel. And... Um, it's possible to come to seminary and not have the internal call very solidified. Often God calls in a gradual way through a number of means and g- gradually confirms it through various instances. And um, I've written actually a document in which I look at the different aspects of what our forefathers said were involved in the call to ministry based on scripture. Try to document that in about 20 pages. And then I give a summary of three or four pages, and you can actually find it in, um, if you go to puritanseminary.org and go to our academic catalog, it's in the back. And I, I, try to, I try to summarize the internal call to the ministry around the word holy. So it's a holy internal call where you feel separated, separated apart from, from other occupations, separated to God. It's a, it's a holy burden. You, you feel like, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. It's also a holy love for the souls of people. There's a special compassion, love you feel for souls of people, kind of a holy compulsion that way too, that you see every unconverted person as a mission field and you, and you just, you also have a holy love for the church. You want to see the church built up in the most holy faith. And then um, holy gifts, you need a certain measure of gifts. You don't need to be extraordinarily gifted, <clears throat> but you need to have a, a basic set of gifts. And... Uh, kind of a, a personality also that really shows that you love people and that can connect with, with people. So there's a certain amount of gifts there as well. And then sometimes that, that internal call is also connected with um, certain holy experiences. Um, and that, probably that's where my personal call comes in. I was, I was 15, 14 years old when I came into conviction, 15 when I came into liberty with Christ, and I was so overwhelmed with uh, the gospel, I just started going door to door, and I was extremely, extremely shy, and uh, that was what all the teachers said on my report card, way too shy, way too shy, but the gospel actually unloosened my tongue, I started talking to people, but still was rather shy, certainly never thought I could ever be a minister of the gospel, that was the furthest thing from my mind, and um, I had this, I hesitate to say it, but it was an experience, a very unique experience for me and a strange one, but my dad was a carpenter, built a house, and there was a 
a lot of weeds that came up in the grass. Instead of putting on weed killer after the house was built, the guy who owned the house was very fussy. He wanted my dad to hire someone to pull all the weeds out of the entire lawn in one month. I sat for a whole month and in August pulling one weed out after another. I was thinking about nothing substantial. And uh, all of a sudden, I just can't, I, I'll just tell you what, what happened to me. I just... I was overwhelmed with these words, go forth and preach the gospel to all men, yea, to the sons of men. And I actually stood up there in that lawn. I looked around. I actually thought someone was behind me. I know it wasn't a, I know today it wasn't a, an audible voice. It sure felt that way at the moment. It just overwhelmed me. And um, yeah, I was in a hyper-Calvinistic church, and, and you have to understand, well, you probably don't understand, but... Um, <laughs> Everything had to be tested by the scriptures. So I came home and I looked up those exact words, and it wasn't exactly that way. It was a couple words off in the, in, in the King James Version. So I went to my pastor and I said, I, you know, this, this crazy thing happened to me. I just got this overwhelming call that came to me, and this is what the, I felt like the Lord spoke to me. And, will you, you know, tell me, tell me. I just can dismiss this. That's just my imagination. And he goes, well... Is very wise, and he said, just, just wait on the Lord, and if, if the Lord really is calling you to the ministry, he'll confirm it in other ways, and those ways will be more important than the initial feeling you had. And that's what happened. Actually, in our denomination, we, we had a youth day camp once a, once a year, and uh, it was always ministers speaking. They never asked a young person to speak, but somehow, for some weird reason, they asked me to speak there. I had never spoken publicly. I was very afraid, full of trembling, and the Lord just helped me in a wonderful way. And then that opened the door for me. People began to come to me and say, don't you think you might be called to the ministry and so on? I got more invitations. And suddenly I just found myself being more and more overwhelmed with this call. So it was a growing thing. And um, then when I was 16, I read Spurgeon's early years. And he started preaching when he was 15. And I was 16. And I came to my dad and I said, it was a complete reversal. I said, I'm overwhelmed. I, the whole world needs the gospel. I said, I, I'm going to quit high school. I'm going to start preaching. My dad goes, now, wait a minute. You know, finish high school, go through college, and then come before board. So finally, I, I went the regular route, and then I became um, a student of the Notice Reformed Churches. When I was 21, I was ordained when I was 25. Went to Iowa, served 700 farmers. And I went from Iowa to New Jersey, where I served 700 um, lawyers and doctors from New York City, and um, that's when I came down here and got my doctorate. And then 29 years ago, I went to Grand Rapids and been there, been there ever since. But the call to the ministry is something that so overwhelmed me as in my later teen years that um, I still feel this way today. I'd rather, I'd rather have you line me up against the wall and shoot me dead than not preach the gospel. I just... I cannot separate who I am from the internal call to preach the gospel. And that's why even until today, I'm president of a seminary, but I, I refuse my denomination's call to be 100% president. I said I have to at least be 25% still in my church. I cannot abandon my church. I need to be preaching every week. Uh, to me, the call to preach is, is, is inseparable from who I am in my sense of calling. So that's why I, I still today, even though... I've got a wonderful wife. She allows me to, to, to do this, but it is hectic. It is very demanding, but I have to, I have to do both. That's a lot better than Carl's. 
It certainly is. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, uh, I just don't measure up, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> Have you ever picked weeds before, Carl? I've not picked weeds. I did pack, uh, I did sellotape boxes in a factory for a couple of months uh, when I was a, a student, but uh, I was listening to music. I was not thinking of nothing, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, uh, my, my way into the ministry is somewhat different. Uh, I suppose temperamentally, I'd have to say I, uh, I'm English, and uh, <laughs> English by birth and conviction. <laughs> English by birth and conviction. Uh, I was brought up in a non-Christian home, so I did not become a Christian until I was, uh, I can't put a, a time and a date to it, but sometime in my late teens, uh, I became a Christian. I've always had a great suspicion of my internal feelings, if I could put it that way. English people, we don't talk about them a lot, and we tend not to trust them on the whole. So my call was first, first of all an external one. And in the late 1990s, I was in a church in Aberdeen in Scotland and was approached about joining the session there and becoming a ruling elder. And it was very, that was a very important moment for me because I, while I don't trust my own instincts, I did trust the session and the congregation to be able to make a judgment of my gifts. And in that context, they allowed me, in, in the Free Church of Scotland, it was not untypical for elders perhaps to preach a couple of times a year, each elder to preach a couple of times a year. So I preached a, a few times in the church where I was an elder and received great encouragement on that front from the elders and the congregation. When I moved to the United States, that initially I tried to pursue ordination through the Free Church of Scotland, which was in retrospect merely a, a sentimental thing, wanting to if you've never emigrated, then you probably won't be able to sympathize with what I'm saying, but ties to the country you've left become very important when you emigrate to an alien culture. And looking back now, I can understand that my desire to be ordained in the Free Church of Scotland was partly a good desire to be a minister of the gospel, but a large part of it was tied up with wanting to, to keep connections with the old country. Round about the middle of the, the last decade, I, I was made vice president at Westminster, and some of you will know that the seminary was just about to plunge into a major theological debate. I don't think me being appointed plunged us into that theological debate, but it was not unconnected to it. And I became convinced during that process that it was important for a seminary professor not only to be connected to the local church, and my wife and I have always been deeply involved in whatever local church we have been in at any point in our lives, but also to be ordained and a member of presbytery because that brought with it a level of ecclesiastical accountability that I thought was appropriate for a seminary professor. So when we emerged from the, the crisis of 2008, I was ordained as a teacher in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 2009 and joined the Philadelphia Presbytery. My path to pastoral ministry was, as, as I listened to Joel's account, I, I, I really do think I don't measure up in many ways because my path to pastoral ministry was, was that of there being a need and me being perceived to have the things that could help ameliorate that need. I was Point as a teacher at the church where I now serve as pastor in uh, 2010 to assist the then pastor 
A financial crisis in the church took that pastor out uh, at the end of middle of 2011, and I became sta uh, stated supply in the church. And it became patently obvious that the church was not going to have sufficient salary to pay a full-time pastor. So it was not going to attract a full-time pastor of a kind that was necessary for the church, humanly speaking, to survive. And secondly, I was already pretty much fulfilling that function as teacher and stated supply. So the church then changed the terms of my call to make me pastor. So my path to pastoral ministry is very different to, to Joel's. I came at it considerably later. I was in my mid past my mid-40s. My wife would say mid-40s, but I would say past my mid-40s. She likes to scale the language down uh, a bit. I came in my late 40s to the pastoral ministry, having served on, on two sessions prior to that in a non-pastoral capacity. And I would add that I think for me, it was important that I did not become a pastor until I was in my mid to late 40s, partly because I had other things to do that looking back, I think, I was the person to do those things, and they were important things to, to get done, not least some of the things that happened here in the last decade. Uh, but the other side of it is I think that I learned an awful lot of uh, ability to handle people and problems in the experience I had being dean, being a professor, being a husband, uh, being a father. All of that experience helped prepare me to take on the ministry at a point where I think I was just about mature enough to do it, if I could put it that way. Had it come to me a decade earlier, I would have been an absolute disaster because I would not have had the... I, I'm sure I could have preached competently, but I would not have had all of the other skills that are necessary to, uh, to be involved in the leadership of a church without causing... Um, a breakdown of the church to some extent. So I've given a very different account to Joel. My, I think, is, is in many ways much more prosaic, but I do believe I'm called to the pastoral ministry. I now, in a situation now where I feel that my tie to the Philadelphia area is very much my church and not the seminary. There are other seminaries in North America I could work out and be very happy at, but I would not leave Westminster at this point because I feel my, my heart is in the church where I pastor here. So Joel started off with a great burden and became a pastor. I guess I became a pastor and then kind of developed the great burden after that. Todd, you're a megachurch pastor. How do you become a megachurch pastor? Uh, yeah. I don't earn a living wage from my pastor. You, you can give us some tips well, I, here. I thought we were going to deal with Amy's uh, call. We're here actually to announce a change of position at Westminster Seminary. Um, no, that's... See, I'm joking about that, and it's, people like it when I joke about that. But I, no, so I, I, I sensed, I, I have no other way to explain it other than when I was a young child, I, I told my mom that um, I was going to be a pastor, and I have no idea why that began to appeal to me. Um, it stopped appealing to me uh, through high school. I felt a strong burden, um, a call into ministry, and I have no explanation for it. Nobody had suggested that uh, to me. And... Um, uh, decided to avoid that as best I could, but I, I had trusted people in my life um, at my church who began to bring it up to me, um, to my dismay in a lot of ways, because I was, I was very frightened of the call, because um, I didn't want to... Uh, the, the idea of preaching terrified me, the, the idea of some of the responsibilities terrified me. And, um, uh, but but as, as an external call began to be attached 
to um, a sense of an internal call. That's when I began to really take it seriously. So I went to, uh, to Bible college after two years in State University, and then from there went to, uh, to seminary. Ordination, I was a Southern Baptist. Ordination as a Southern Baptist is very easy. I encourage any of you to, um, to look into it. Um, the, the standards are very low. And so I was asked, when I was ordained, um, I was serving at a youth pastor in a, in a Southern Baptist megachurch, and uh, I was asked two questions. I, I stood before the, the deacons, um, and uh, the pastor asked me, um, he said, G- uh, just give us a quick systematic theology. And I said, a quick systematic theology? Okay, well, um, uh, doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, redemption, uh, the church, eschatology. I didn't get much into eschatology because at that point I wasn't a dispensationalist, and it's not safe to not be a dispensationalist in, in, in that particular Southern Baptist church. So I uh, just said something along the lines of Jesus wins in the end, and that was very satisfactory. And uh, so I, I, I answered that. I gave them just a very brief sketch of systematic theology. That seemed to satisfy. And then I was asked one other question, which was, what do you think about women deacons? I answered right on that, and so they ordained me. Um, so it was, it was great. Now, I, 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 from, from Southern Baptist life, transitioned uh, for several years into um, non-denominational life, which was, which was very much of a challenge. Um, I, it, it was during that period where I became convinced that um, denominational structure and clear governance are incredibly important. And um, over a period of time, began to investigate ordination, or actually technically transfer of ordination um, into the, the PCA. And I went through that process, which was a, a wonderful process. It was a grueling process, um, but, uh, but very, very, uh, very good process. And, and in, a, in a sense, my, my transition into a, a real live denomination, because if, if you grew up Southern Baptist, you know the Southern Baptist Convention isn't really a denomination. It's more of a, a connect, just a, a group of connectional churches that agree on the, on the Baptist faith and message. Um, and, and pool resources for the sake of missions, which is, which is fine. Um, but uh, it, it's been very, very good. And once again, confirming in my sense of call to, to have gone through the ordination process in the PCA um, and uh, to now be a, a part of a, a, a body of brothers in, in a presbytery has been incredibly, once again, affirming at this stage in my life of where the Lord has me um, uh, in this call. So, so my situation began very much as a child with an internal sense of call, um, but then I, I, I avoided that until trusted uh, men in my life and my church began to identify um, a call they saw. So um, that, was my, that was my goal. And, and now I'm, I'm happily uh, Presbyterian. Uh, I recommend it. It's a good thing. It's your right. turn. All right, all right. Um, I was baptized uh, right after my birth in 1942 in, in uh, Vermont Avenue Presbyterian Church in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, my father was in the Marines, got out of the Marines, and was killed in 46. And I left my mother with three little guys. And we bounced around to different places where the gospel wasn't preached. And uh, she... Uh, became discouraged when the pastor no longer believed in God and decided that uh, she would move us somewhere else. And I was in a very, a very exotic Arminian context. 
And I began to hear the gospel preached as a little boy at 12 and a half years old. And I mean, I knew that I didn't know Christ. I knew that I wanted to know Christ. I knew that I was a sinner, although I didn't know what all the sins were that you could do, but I, I knew it. I was under a deep conviction of sin. And uh, I happened to have the, uh, uh, God worked, it, uh, worked my life out through uh, athletic inju- injury. I went to camp with some college students in the Sierras. And I heard the gospel preached. And uh, I was converted with my eyes on Romans 10, 9 and 10 in the King James. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I can still see those words because I looked, it just came off the page, into my mind, into my heart, and I was radically regenerated at that age. I also had uh, the pastor, didn't have any men in my life, but the pastor had taken a great interest in me. And he was a World War II vet, manly man who loved Jesus, I identify with him, and I think if I was, if you were going to psychologize God's sovereign work in my life, which you better be careful about, I would say this, that I identified with him, and so when I got saved, the next day I announced that I was called to preach. Totally existential. Totally subjective. But what happened is it informed everything in my life. That's all that I ever wanted to do from that time on. It was, I was converted. And uh, so I preached my first sermon when I was 16. There are many in context. I read Arthur Pink's The Sovereignty of God and became a, an enthusiastic Calvinist <laughs> in the midst of all of that. And it left me full and focused. And... Uh, uh, so that's what I always wanted to do. Went to college, then began seminary. Uh, the church that I had grown up then, then was looking for a youth pastor, and I went in and said, I wanted to apply. And I remember the secretary saying to me, they'll never hire you. <laughs> um, she's with the Lord now. Her name was I- Iola. I used to call her the Ayatollah. Is she with the Lord because of yeah. what she said to you? Or? I think it's because of other things, but uh, anyway, um, I, I, I began to just minister during the decade of the 60s to young people, began to preach in the early 70s. Um, I won't go into my ordination, which is kind of a strange thing, but was at college church for 27 years, and I, that is the defining time in my life when the scripture came alive, uh, I, I, it was like I was blind one day, and the next day I could read it and understand the basic things in scripture. And uh, I still have that Bible, little tiny Bible, all marked up with the verses I marked when I came to know Christ. So that's, that's the genesis of my call. Well, let me ask you guys this. Oh, can I interrupt you for just a second? No. Um, I... <laughs> You made, you made uh, I try to find, learn new terms everywhere I go, and you made the term exotic Arminian. And I, I don't know what an exotic Arminian is, but I, I think it demands some sort of either explanation or scholarly treatment or, or something. Well, I hesitate to say it. <laughs> it was actually Quakers oh. where I got saved. Now, see, that would have made, that's better than ex- exotic Arminian. That's right. I, 
Yeah, now we know. Th that is exotic. <laughs> that is, that is. Yeah. Even in Pennsylvania. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. See, I speak I, well, yeah, but I just thought everybody would want to know that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've noticed that there's quite a bit of women in the room. And so I wanted to ask about um, the wife of a pastor. I know that's not a specific calling per se, but it is a vocation as a wife to a pastor, and I think it's a lot different for other women. So what would you say to the women here that are listening who um, may be in that role one day, or the men here who are not married yet, or um, the men who are married and need a better understanding of how that works? What is the um, special calling or burden even in some ways and responsibilities and privileges to be the wife of a pastor? My wife is right here. Um, I know, I should be asking that. <laughs> yeah, you can come up and add to it, Mary. Um, <laughs> well, I've, I've, just, I've just been incredibly, incredibly blessed with a God-fearing, wonderful wife. And I, someone said to me not too long ago, you know what I love about your wife? She's involved, as involved in your, in your ministry as you are. And I think the whole idea of a minister's wife Seeing the ministerial wife's calling is kind of a burden because she's going to compete with her husband's work is, is a travesty. And it will destroy or at least profoundly damage that, that ministry, all the minister's life. So I would say number one to remember, this sounds rather negative, but number one is a woman can break or make her husband's ministry in large measure. And you need... If you're a minister's wife, you need to come in line with your husband's calling and see it de facto as your calling as well. And you cannot live a selfish life. You do have to make sacrifices. You do have to give. But there are also incredible number of rewards along the way. The same way that a minister never has to wake up at any morning in his life and say, I'm in a midlife crisis. My life isn't worthwhile. Because you're dealing with souls all the time. A minister's wife is also dealing with souls all the time. A lot of women will come to you for advice. Um, the way you respond to people just sets the tone. The way a husband-wife team respond to each other sets a tone in the entire church. You have an incredibly important calling. And so you need to treasure that. You need to take advantage of that. Also, use your gifts. Um, study a little theology so you can converse with your husband. That's great. Uh, if you're here, especially, take some courses, whatever. That all is hel helpful. But mainly, you have to see that you and your husband have a mutual calling together. Yours is different than his, but as you go forward and you show kindness to people, you care about people, you get involved in their lives, you will also get that sense of ministerial call that will be very, very rewarding. My wife said to me actually the other day, she said, you know, what I like about being married to you is my life is very exciting now. I, I, if I was just ordinary calling, maybe I'd be kind of bored with life. But she, she's been to 30 countries with me, all kinds of experiences. And so it, it, gets, it doesn't mean you have to travel a lot, but it does get exciting when you get to minister to people. You're doing the Lord's work. So don't see the ministry's wife as a burden, but see it as a tremendous privilege. So Edward Payson, a 19th century minister, used to sit in his study from time to time, and he'd clap his hands with joy just all by himself and say, I thank you, Lord, I'm called to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I think a minister's wife 
ought to just sit sometimes and say, oh, Lord, thank you so much for calling me to be the wife of a pastor. I've just got this wonderful opportunity to minister to people all the time. And real joy, real happiness doesn't come through being selfish and getting, getting, getting what I want, what I want, what I want. Real happiness comes from serving other people and serving God. That's how we were created. Be other person-centered. God, man, and creation. And when you serve others, you get rewarded with genuine happiness. And as a minister's wife, you have a wonderful opportunity to do just that. So it can be a very rewarding. So I would love to bash to pieces this whole idea that being a minister's wife is a very sad thing and a burdensome thing. And I would add to that just this thought. When you work together with your husband or your future husband as a team, that is so incredibly rewarding because you're bonded together beyond yourselves and you, your, your whole lives are bonded together in, in a wonderful, wonderful way. And that's, of course, assuming that your husband is going to treat you the way Christ treats the church. That's a big calling for a minister to really love his wife and appreciate. And you can give so much wisdom to your husband's ministry because women tend to have an extra sense that men don't have in terms of people discernment and stuff like that. And by talking together over problems and being confidential and, and, and supportive, you can be your husband's best elder with the small e. Uh, like, you know, not ordained, but you, you can be the greatest support. And, and, and your husband can look at you and say, you know what, you... you, you you, you just are like everything to me in this ministry. I love you to pieces. I love you just as a person. I love your personality. But I also love you as a helpmeet in my incredibly high and lofty calling of ministry. I'd like to jump in there if that's okay. Yeah. Um, I went through a really tough time in ministry early on. And uh, it's in Chronicle in that little book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. But uh, I, I really contemplated quitting the ministry because of some things that were going on that uh, had to do with the whole struggle with success. And uh, I unburdened myself to my wife one night, just laid it all out. And uh, at the end of that, after I had done this and uh, decided that I would go off and go to bed, she said to me, hang on to my faith. I've got enough faith for both of us. And I think if she'd have said something else that night, I don't know where I would be. And uh, so uh, the, ministry, the ministry consumes everything. And to have a helpmate that believes in you and stands with you, uh, I just want to say that, that that's what my wife did for me. And uh, I, I bless God for her every day. Yeah. I, Joe, I just wanted to say an amen to what you said, because oftentimes we will hear uh, pastors complain that, you know, pastor has the hardest job in the world, which we don't. Um, it's a privilege to be a pastor. And I'm, I'm so glad you said what you said about it, it, it can be and should be a happy thing um, for your wife as well. And, um, and I've been very grateful that, that my wife understands that uh, although there's some goofy things about being a pastor, uh, there's a lot of blessing that attends to it, and she's been able to see that, and, and, that's, and that's a great thing. And I would just say, keying off of what Kent said, I went through a, uh, several years, uh, about two or three years of a, a very, very challenging and difficult season in ministry, and I typically tr would 
if, if something negative happened in church, I wouldn't always tell my wife. I don't want to burden her with every bad thing. But this was a deal that was, was ugly enough that she knew what was going on. And she, the Lord just gave her a tremendous amount of grace to help shoulder the burden. I would come home. She would see me. I would be miserable. And she'd just open up her Bible and begin to read Psalms to me. And that got me through each day that she was going to do something like that. But she um, was able to shoulder that burden when I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to. So a pastor's wife has an incredible role in his life in ministry, and it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I wouldn't, this isn't pushback against that at well, all. Well, it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't No, because you're correct. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, would add, I don't want you to embarrass yourself, Carl. Is the I will thing. try not to. I will try not to. I, I do think there's a danger, though, at the, at the other end, that wives can believe their husband's own propaganda about themselves. And I think that can be a risk, that being supportive of your husband doesn't mean simply agreeing with everything your husband says and wants to do. That wives have a critical function as well uh, in a number of ways. So I think, for example, certainly in, in a denomination like mine where we, we don't ordain women, a lot of pastoral problems that pop up involve women. And it's very useful to have a wife who's able to tell you, no, you're not really approaching this correctly or this will be misunderstood in this way. Uh, so I would, I would add that it's, it's important to have a wife who doesn't believe a husband's own propaganda. Yeah, I mean, I think the way to put it is um, it's, it's a privilege to have a wife who's very supportive of you but is not your fan. Yeah. Your wife isn't my fan either. She, she doesn't care for you. No. She, Todd, Todd's wife has never let me in there. <laughs> That's uh, for some reason that I've not been able to get to the bottom of. Um, when I'm greeted in the morning, my wife says, uh, good morning, my lord. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Not really, like Sarah of old, yeah. It's also important to have a, a co-host who doesn't believe in your propaganda. You're not a fan? Either. Oh. So. Yeah, we're all faking the whole English thing. He's from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> your, wife, your wife can be supportive of you. Yes. And she can be, I don't know if fan is the right word, but, but loyal to your ministry. Absolutely. And still be, be very honest with you. Because but, she's supportive of you. Yeah, and, and a wise ministerial wife will learn how to correct you and offer constructive criticism according to your own personality makeup, just like you learn her weaknesses and strengths and how to, how to correct her, you know, and, and I, I've, I've counseled ministers' wives who've just been, ministers who've been crushed because they get in the car after the sermon, the wife just blows steam at them about their terrible sermon, I'm like, you know, this is awful, she's not a help me when she does that, you know, so... When I get in the car and my sermon didn't go well and I know it didn't go well, I kind of look at her and say, you know, how do you think it went? My wife is very gracious, but she's still honest. She just says, well, they can't all be your best. <laughs> so I know it was a real bad flop, yeah. right? Yeah. But it doesn't overwhelm me the way that some, some men get overwhelmed well, it's, it's by It's interesting because that's what Katrina tells Carl every Sunday. They can't all be your best. And, uh, Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. This week, we'd like to give away special edition copies of Mortification of Spin, Season 3. 
You'll get a CD of all of 2015's podcasts in a hardback case to display on your bookshelf, keep as a quick reference to all your favorite episodes, or to give as a gift to introduce a friend to Mortification of Spin. Visit mortificationofspin.org to enter that giveaway. This week, we answered a question about the role and vocation of a pastor's wife. Next week, we'll answer a listener's question about the role of all women in the church. A thin complementarian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Both of you, both, both of you thin, thin complementarians mm-hmm. who apparently think it's okay to appear in a preaching context with some charismatic, health, wealth, prosperity, gospel not female us, preacher. No. Oh no, that wasn't you. That was a thick. That was somebody else. Yeah. Anyway, his name escapes me. Um, but anyway, let me ask you a question then. So, Carl, at at, at uh, Cornerstone OPC, you say no, a, a, a woman cannot preach. That that's for a man. But a woman can teach the Bible in a Sunday school class. Why? Make sure to join us for that. Can't get enough mortification of spin? Head over to Carl, Todd, and Amy's blog at mortificationofspin.org to continue the conversation. And we'll talk to you next time. This thing on? Hey. Yes. Uh, airplane food. Hey, everybody have, have airplane food. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> yeah. Why can't the plane be made out of... Uh, no. Um, What's up with that black box? Why can't they make the plane out of the black box? Hey. <laughs>